Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Ben Bernanke needs no introduction. Yes, the former chairman of the Federal Reserve, but not only that, but one of our frontline academics, and little did we know, a wonderful author. His book, A Courage to Act, starts quickly and moves ever forward, breathlessly through the crisis that we have all lived and the aftermath as well. He's out now with a new edition, paperback, perfect for beach reading, and it's got a new afterword as well. Ben, congratulations. This I know you've done the interview circuit. I want to dive into a longer, more thoughtful conversation about many of these themes. Let me first begin with the emotion you capture at the beginning of the book. Anybody in the racket of business journalism knows the name Michelle Smith. She's the keeper of the gate. She guards the lock and key at the Fed. If you don't get along with Michelle Smith, you don't talk to anyone. You open your book with you exhausted in an office with Michelle Smith. Tell us about that moment where you really finally hit the wall in this crisis. Well, Michelle Smith was also functioning as my chief of staff and general advisor. And that was the day that um, we had decided to to, uh, intervene with AIG. And it was an enormously risky situation. I'd been earlier that day to Congress. I talked to a group of senators and representatives, and they basically made it clear that we were on our own, that whatever we did was our responsibility and our call. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, this was a couple of days after, after Lehman, and the financial system was in, in shock, essentially. And it required a unanimous vote to, to take the actions we did, which was eventually to lend mm-hmm. $85 billion to AIG so it wouldn't collapse. And so I could have stopped it, but you know, we thought it was the right thing to do, and, and we went ahead and, and did it. But it was perhaps the darkest one, or at least certainly one of the darkest moments. Uh, from there on, things began to look better, but certainly there were some very dark moments There's at that time. all sorts of hindsight going on here. I remember being transfixed at a fancy Bloomberg chart watching Bear Stearns go down in flames. And we all have our individual uh, moments here. Not when did you know it was all clear, but from those dark moments, where did you get the confidence that the theory and the foundations that you had uh, learned at MIT and on to your teaching career at Stanford, Princeton, and the others, when did it click in that you may get this right? Well, I, I think I understood the crisis. The crisis, it was about subprime mortgages, about all these things, but it was basically a panic. It was a financial panic, very analogous to the runs on the banks we saw in the 19th century or in the Depression. But it was an electronic panic. So everyone was in the sense that the short-term funding of the system through the repo market, through the commercial paper market, was all being withdrawn. Everything was freezing up. And I know I'd seen the analogy to the earlier panics, and I, I think I understood in principle mm-hmm. at that point how we were going to comment, how we were going to stabilize the situation. But the politics was difficult. As you know, even, uh, after, even after Lehman failed, uh, it took quite a while to get Congress to, to act. It took two tries before they would act. I think the, the passage of the TARP bill, the, the Troubled Asset Relief Program, which provided money to 
stabilize, recapitalize the banking system. Right. And then there was a meeting in October of the, of the G, G7 uh, in Washington where we met with the uh, finance ministers and, and central bank governors of the other major industrial powers. And there was a, a sense of that meeting that, that we had to work together, you know, hang together or hang separately at that mm-hmm. point. And I talk about it in my, in my book. And between that resolution in Washington and then collectively among the G7 that we were going to do what it took to use Mario Draghi's famous phrase, uh, I thought from there that we were going to find our way right. out, but it was still very tricky. It's such a luxury of a longer conversation with Ben Bernanke. We're going to touch on a number of the themes that we've got uh, going on right now, and of course we will avoid, as we always do with any former Fed official, the immediate talk as we go to the Fed meeting uh, this afternoon. So I'm not going to ask uh, Ben Bernanke about how many interest rates will they do this year or anything like that. That's part of the rules of the game. One of the joys is is to look back at your former speeches. I want to speak about the structure of the Fed, and this goes back to your speech 15 years ago almost now with Milton Friedman in presence, his 90th birthday. It's a great speech about something you're really good at, which is depression history. But at the end of it, you talk about then which is exactly like now, this uncertainty of Fed leadership. Benjamin Strong, in the Depression, has the audacity to get sick and die. And you make clear they never recovered. Do we face that now with this, this new administration in tumult? They talk about John Taylor, they talk about Glenn Hubbard, but they talk about other names as well that don't have your PhD chops. Do we have a risk of a leaderless Fed with President Trump? Well, I think it's presumptuous to say we don't know who he's going to appoint. He could conceivably reappoint Janet Yellen, which I think would be, from his perspective, would be... To reappoint Chair Yellen. Chair Yellen would be certainly, from his perspective, a very a reasonable, sensible thing to do. She's obviously highly competent. She's done a good job. She's got the confidence of the markets. But whoever um, whoever's appointed, I'm sure, uh, will certainly work carefully with the rest of the FOMC. And, mm-hmm. and there's a reason why... There are so many people on the Federal Market Committee making those decisions, including seven members of the board, and then a high-quality staff, which provides a lot of guidance and help. So I don't think we're quite in the 1928 situation by any means, and I'm, of course, very hopeful that they will appoint, if not Janet Yellen, they will appoint somebody strong and, and competent. It, within that is this sharp debate within the business media, and I would suggest within economics as well, where if you vet, I'm going to pick on Gary Cohn of the, of the Trump administration with great respect for Mr. Cohn's abilities. Do you need to have a Ph.D. in economics? Do you need to be a frontline academic out of MIT to I, take the I, I job? I think it would be presumptuous to say that. I mean, Paul Volcker does not have a Ph.D. He was obviously very familiar with monetary policy in the Fed, having been in the system for a number of years, and obviously new markets uh, as well. So I think there's a range of skills that you can have, but obviously you also have to be at least familiar, obviously, with monetary policy mm-hmm. and, and uh, how it works and what some of the issues are. And, and there are important technical components to it, but, but leadership is not constrained by you know, a narrow set of skills. There's, there's uh, I think, different types of backgrounds that could generate, uh, create a good fair chair. But it is important, obviously, to know a lot about monetary policy mm-hmm. and, and, and the financial system. What do you envision that our vice chairman of what I'm going to call generally regulation will do? This is a new position. Mm-hmm. There's talk Randy Quarles' name, among others, has come up mm-hmm. for a more regular. I, I think it's, it's not the romance of the Fed that we cover at Bloomberg and within all of business economics. What do you envision that job to be for that new kind of vice chairman? Well, it's a very important job, obviously. Um, 
because as they say, personnel is policy. And so even if the regulatory structure is only you know, moderately changed, is not mm -hmm. substantially changed, the way it's applied and executed will matter a lot in practice. So uh, you know, the people they've talked about generally are people who are, I think, highly qualified, have had a lot of background in financial regulation. But it's also important to get somebody who will take very seriously what I think we kind of learned from the, from the great crisis was that it's not enough to be looking at individual banks and at the individual components of the system. Somebody mm -hmm. has to think hard about the stability of the system as a whole. And uh, that was something that really was, of course, brought home to us when the system as a whole uh, went into shock in right. 2008. So uh, that person will have a very important role coordinating with other regulators, the FDIC and other agencies, uh, mm -hmm. trying to make sure not only are banks individually stable, but is the system as a whole uh, resilient for the next shock that, that will come. Right. One more question on the look back to things we've learned in other uh, crises. Within the Depression, within the Great Contraction, as uh, many have called it, there's this single idea that we had to keep the banks afloat. And this has been a great theme of yours. What's so interesting is your speech is you don't go back to 1929. You go back to challenges of 1928. Mm -hmm. Do you worry that right now we have any of the precursors or setups, not of a, the, the, the hysteria of a depression, but of 1928 when everything was perfect and yet it wasn't, was it? No, it wasn't. I, I wouldn't say I, saw, I see strong parallels there and among other things, the Fed is in a much better position and I think is much stronger We're as an institution. We're smarter than we used to be, right? Well, is that I, a rumor? You, one hopes so. One yeah. hopes so. You know, sometimes, sometimes things go in cycles. But uh, certainly our financial system is a lot stronger. And one of the problems of the 30s was that the Fed, which was at that point was a very young institution, had only been created in 1914 mm -hmm. essentially, uh, and one of its its objectives was to help maintain stability in the banking system. It mm -hmm. did not succeed in doing that. And in the United States, something like 8,000 banks failed in the 1930s, which not only had tremendously negative impacts on the money supply, but also on credit, as you would imagine. Mm -hmm. And one of the lessons we took in the uh, financial crisis of 2008 was that the financial system is a critical input to the health of the economy as a whole. You can't let it collapse because it'll bring down the rest of the economy. And I think that was certainly something we learned with the benefit of hindsight, seeing what happened in the 1930s. Right. If you're just joining us on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio, a lengthy conversation with the former chairman of the Federal Reserve System, Ben Bernanke. The book is The Courage to Act. It is out with a new afterword where he speaks uh, interestingly and I would say perhaps sharply about the present administration and their view forward. We'll get to that in a moment. I want to talk about investment. It's a theme that constantly occurs with another work that all of our economic team does. It's Y equals C plus I plus G plus NX, and the I isn't there. I, in 07, 08, Ken Rogoff identified this to me. Bill Pohl identified this to me. Now everyone knows it. Where is the investment? What the mystery of the lack of investment now? Well, uh, it has been weaker than we would like. Uh, capital investment, new, new factories, new buildings, and so on. Um, it hasn't been catastrophically bad, but certainly should, should be better, and that would be better not only in terms of driving demand you know, for, mm -hmm. for output, but also in creating more capacity and increasing productivity and helping us grow more in the long run. Um, I think you know, Larry Summers talks about secular stagnation, and I have some sympathy with that. I have some other thoughts about that, but, but there is some evidence that around the world that uh, there's a lot of savings looking for good investments to make, 
but for a variety of reasons, slower growth, slower uh, growing labor force, uh, relatively weak productivity gains in advanced industrial economies, that the number of strong capital projects that pay a high return is just limited and with the amount of saving that we see looking for returns that's driving down yields and keeping interest rates low globally uh, we have to look for uh, new sources of growth new industries new technologies those things mm -hmm. will be coming I think which is why I don't buy secular stagnation as a permanent situation but right now and partly because of the after effects of course of the crisis itself uh, we just we just don't have the opportunities out there that that we would like. Can there be a policy prescription to jumpstart investment that is modern and forward-looking, or do we risk having a nostalgic investment where we build you know as they did in Japan years ago, build roads to well, there's, there's different there's there's different elements. There's yeah. uh, cost of capital and tax policy. Obviously, you know, there's a lot of discussion about corporate tax sure. rates. There is uh, technology. We need to continue to support technological advance and the adaptation mm -hmm. of new technologies into commercial purposes. Um, skilled workers to provide complements to those uh, to those uh, investments. Uh, even uh, you mentioned roads and buildings. I, you know, in the United States, I don't think we're quite in the state where we couldn't benefit from some improved infrastructure. This would be true. You should come uh, to New York more as, as well. I mean, you know, uh, you were talking the other day about how long it took you to get from Washington. Ten hours, to seven New York. minutes. DC eight uh, LGA. Fix so that. <laughs> if you want, uh, you want people to spend less time yeah. in traffic jams and uh, less time traveling from city to city, which is in, a mm -hmm. detriment to productivity. Then, you know, infrastructure is uh, is one way to to improve that. Dimension. So th there's a number of different things that can, can, mm. can help, but it's a slow process. You can't expect uh, people make, uh, firms make capital investments over 5, 10, 20 year horizons. You can't expect everything to turn mm. on a dime. But I I'm hopeful that there will be some improvement in that. I have the clearest memory, Chairman Bernanke, of Chairman Greenspan. Not baffled, but almost bewildered by the buoyant productivity of another time and place. Every chairman of a Fed, all with courage to act, are dealt their productivity cards. Chair Yellen's been dealt a very tough deck on productivity. It's a mystery. I was speaking with my colleague Michael McKee about this. It's at the top of Mike McKee's list. Capital dynamics, labor dynamics, and with a great honor to Robert Solo, this odd thing off to the right side of the equation. Sure. What is wrong with America's productivity right now? Well, some of it may be after effects of the financial crisis. After all, the crisis led to fewer startups of new firms, less venture capital, less R&D, less capital investment. All those things that generate productivity over time. I think we're moving away from that now. It's almost a decade since since the crisis. The other thing is the line uh, pursued by Bob Gordon. You know his work on the rise and fall of American growth. And he argues that the period uh, after World War II, the 50s, 60s, was kind of an unusual period. There was a lot of catch-up after World War II, um, a lot of transformations happening uh, in the American economy, which we're not quite seeing that degree of change at this time. And so the slower productivity gains are just reflecting the fact that technology comes and ebbs and flows. You mentioned uh, Greenspan's technology boom in the 90s. That was a period where the, uh, the new IT revolution, information technology revolution, was really first having its big mm -hmm. impact on productivity from areas from office work to retail you know, to engineering. Um, that seems to have slowed in 2005. It appears by that time that a lot of that first wave of IT productivity had been absorbed. It may, we may get another wave, but at the moment we're kind of in a, a little bit of a flat spot.
Within this flat spot of productivity is the clearly with Mr. Trump doing so well and Senator Sanders and the populism and other uh, elections around the world, there's a primal scream to do something about it. How do you lift wages? Where does wage growth, where does that sense, as Mr. Gordon talked about uh, with a wonderful 20th century that you and I live, where does that prosperity come from? Well, it's not just prosperity. I think there's an interesting, in, in the following sense, there's an interesting paradox, which is that if you look at the economy as a whole, you talk about the unemployment rate and job creation and GDP growth and all those things, you know, the recovery's been pretty good overall. Uh, unemployment's 4.5%. We created 16 million jobs. But then, of course, Donald Trump was elected president because a lot of people are very dissatisfied. Right. So it's not just the overall the strength of the economy with the United States is frankly the envy of a lot of other economies in the world but the fact that those gains are not being broadly shared that social mobility upward mobility is is not what it was 40 or 50 years ago in the United States so a big part of the overall growth picture is also trying to make sure that everyone is contributing everyone is sharing in prosperity I think that is that is where we have fallen down where we have not help provide the opportunity that, that we need. Is it a cultural dearth of productivity? Page 586. Here it is, folks. 586, and it reads faster than that. It's not war and peace. Don't be, don't be afraid. Hey, Bernanke, I called on Congress to increase spending or cut taxes or at least to avoid new austerity. Are we victims of our cultural economics, almost our cultural religion, where we can't spend money when we need to? Well, it's, it's ironic because, of course, now we're talking about big tax cuts. I know from, at least from the perspective of putting people back to work, it would have made more sense to have had uh, uh, more tax cuts and more spending in 2013 or 2012, which is when I was asking for that. Yeah. I think the, from, at least from that perspective, with unemployment at 4.5%, the case today is a little weaker, although there's always a case for improving the quality of the tax code, making it more efficient, fair, simple, and so on. But in terms of adding demand to the economy, you know, that, that would have been right. a little bit better a few years ago. Let's make some news here. Are these tax cuts, tax cuts you can support is proposed, and particularly are these tax cuts within a gilded age where all those benefits go too narrowly to the affluent? Well, if I talk about the, the proposal, the income tax proposal for personal income, I guess I have a couple of concerns. One is that uh, it is more demand side, I think, oriented than supply side. That is, it's going to generate more consumer spending. It's not obvious it's going to increase the potential of the economy very much. Mm -hmm. And as I was saying, four or five years ago, we could have used more demand side uh, stimulus. Today, it's not as obvious that we do need that. The other aspect of it uh, is that, as written down, we, of course, we don't know the details. It appears like it would create a much bigger deficit. I'm not opposed to increasing deficits under all circumstances by any means, but if we're going to increase the deficit, why not think about improving the efficiency of the corporate tax code well, or we doing do. infrastructure yeah. that I think would have more direct effects on supply potential mm -hmm. output than personal tax cuts. You didn't suffer the pain of working at CBO, right? Uh, no, but I was in the White House for a while, and I, I, I had my connections with OMB, the yeah. Office of Management and Budget. Do you have in your head a deficit to GDP percent where, for Ben Bernanke, it becomes problematic? Is it five? Right now, folks, we're at three percent, give or take a little. Five percent. Does, does your caution click in at six percent? Where is well, it? Well, I think that what, what I, the way I think about this is the, the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, does these. Um, uh, projections of 
the debt and the deficit out for 20, 30 mm. years. And uh, so I think about it that way. I mean, I think you can always have, you know, I, I was supportive of the fiscal program in 2009 right. in, in the depth of the recession where, where because the recession was so bad, we needed some fiscal stimulus that a big deficit was kind of inevitable at that right. point. So I tend to think about the longer term perspective. And so how much will uh, changes in policy affect that longer term trajectory? And, and by the way, I think one of the key elements to that is really what's going to happen to health care. Not that I really want to get into the deep details of health care policy, but, but uh, the federal government, uh, which some people have described as being an insurance company with an army, mm-hmm. you know, that's basically right. the two things it does. Yeah. It, it, it insures people for health and, and retirement, and it, and it runs the military. Um, if, if the cost of health care in our aging society continue along the lines we, you know, right. we've seen in the past few decades, that's going to be a, a huge fiscal burden 20, 20 years away. I'm going to go. I'm going to take the bait, folks. Here we go on health care, which yeah. is the theme in Washington uh, this afternoon. With 17% of GDP, it's ridiculous how much more we spend than every other prosperous nation in this world. Would you suggest that the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, or Trump Care can lower that contribution to GDP of health care? Well, there's been some success on that in the last few years Agreed. in that the uh, rate of growth of health care costs has diminished somewhat. But the, uh, quite honestly, the focus of both Obamacare and, and some of the proposals here are more about coverage. I mean, how many people are covered and at what cost. Mm-hmm. And the tough decisions about quality, right. what, what we're going to pay for, how much it's going to cost. Mm-hmm. That, that's mm-hmm. there, but it, it hasn't it gotten mm-hmm. as much attention as the coverage rate. Take a memo. We're going to a three-hour interview. We've got too many things yeah, to talk okay. about here today. A couple more minutes with Ben Bernanke here, and we're going to come back on some important themes, including uh, the idea of the Fed balance sheet, which I know is really front and center. I was talking to our Brendan Murray, and he talks about the complacency that's out there, the quiet that's out there with our reporting every day uh, at uh, Bloomberg. Are you worried that we're lulling ourselves into being not careful with our economic thought? Is it just too quiet out there right now? Well, you know, markets are, are pretty quiet. The volatility indicators are pretty low, and I don't fully understand it. Uh, certainly the world is, is a dangerous place in some dimensions. Certainly uh, there, there's no shortage of geopolitical concerns, uh, you know, from North Korea you know, to the Middle East. Uh, but markets so far don't, or, or the politics look what we're seeing, for example, in Europe, the markets so far have kind of dismissed those yeah. things. It's interesting. What do you make of that? And it, it, yeah. for the haves, those that have assets and are in the game, not the people that feel so d- removed and disaffected, there's just the quiet to what's going on. Yeah, no, I, I don't really have a great explanation for it. I, I think that... Uh, the, the good news is that, you know, while a lot of the increase in market valuations in the last six months uh, or four mm. months came about because of, of the reaction that there was going to be right. some kind of Trump boom, which so far is not obviously materialized mm. and looks to be pushed further out in the future, uh, not all of it is not all right. of the market reactions due to expectations about President Trump's policy. Some of it is due to the fact that there's just been a, a somewhat better tone. Globally, I mean, we've seen a little bit better tone in, in Europe, a better tone in China, and uh, that's, that, that has made people, I guess, a little more comfortable Let about the outlook. This. You and I used Kufel and Esser slide rules. Remember you had a slide rule and it was a pain, you couldn't figure out how to use it? Mm-hmm. And one day this magical thing showed up, a Hewlett-Packard calculator. Remember the first rich kid in your class yeah, who had one? Too. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, everybody, the rich kids had them, and it was like, one day I'll have this too. That technological progress that you and I lived in, not many others have been 
many of our viewers and Bloomberg people lived. Is that really what's going on now is a technological progress that is only advantage to a certain group of people versus a broader part of society? Well, I don't know. I mean, everybody has a cell phone, or a large number of people have cell phones, even in emerging markets. Fair. Uh, so some of the, some of these technological things are helping. The advances are helping a lot of people. Uh, I think it is true that that there's a bit of a paradox again that you know, we talk about all these amazing advances in communications and artificial intelligence and so on, but overall productivity just isn't doing very much. And I think the truth is that outside of some areas like communications, like social media, that the technological per, uh, opportunities we see out there have not yet really, okay. you know, completely diffused into our economy. And that that's a potential for the next couple of decades. Well, we're going to come back with Ben Bernanke in support of the courage to act. It was hugely successful in hardcover now out in paperback with a new afterword. We're going to come back and talk about the immediate issues of the Federal Reserve. No, not the meeting today. That's not fair game. But yes, we will talk about the balance sheet as well. Right now, the joy before our Fed meeting is a conversation with a former Federal Reserve System Chairman, Ben Bernanke. He is out with the courage to act hugely received in hardcover here a year ago, maybe 14 months ago, and now in paperback with a new biting afterward about the events of his Washington. Now, he's, of course, been at the Brookings Institution writing must-read blogs on a really accessible theory. That's on the edge of Milton Friedman. I mean, I remember Milton Friedman when we were kids writing Newsweek. Are you deal. enjoying grinding this out, or is this David Wessel beating you every Wednesday? Well, get the me, note but, out? Uh, I do try to get, to get out something yeah. once in a while. It's yeah. a real, it's a public service. Let's go right to it right now. I'm not going to ask you about uh, silly Fed immediacy, but I am going to ask you about the Fed balance sheet. You've written about this. I would suggest it is a fear in some camps bordering on hysteria, and you seem to face this debate about lowering the Fed uh, balance sheet, the balloon up during the crisis. You seem calm about it. Are you calm about it? Yeah, no, I'm quite calm. I mean, I think there are legitimate questions about how big it should be ultimately, and we can talk about that, of course, but but uh, there seems to be uh, no concern, certainly not much visible in markets, that the unwinding part is going to be very difficult. Uh, the whole strategy of the Fed is basically to, uh, at some point, uh, stop reinvesting maturing securities and let it run off in a very quiet, passive way. And I, I suspect that will be uh, received pretty well. When the concision of your thought, what you lead to always is within a paragraph, distinctions. And you've got an important distinction within the balance sheet uproar. Educate our audience about the word to shrink passively and that there's different ways to shrink. And you make a key distinction there. Well, sure. The, the balance sheet uh, is mostly consists of U.S. Treasury securities and mortgage-backed securities, Fannie and Freddie securities backed by U.S. government. Um, those are obviously, you know, private sector type and private securities that are owned by the, the Fed, and they have a maturity. And at some point, you know, each individual security will, will mature and, and, right. and, and run off. And what happened was that earlier on in the uh, process of expanding the balance sheet, we began to say, well, look, we don't want the balance sheet to decline in a passive way because things are running off, you know, maturing. So we began to process, this is back in 2010, whenever a security ran off, we took the proceeds, we reinvested it in new security, so to keep the size of the balance sheet unchanged. Right. And so since October 2014, when the Fed stopped buying securities, the balance sheet has basically been fixed size, with all maturing securities having been replaced. 
Now, what they're eventually going to do, according to their explanations and many speeches mm -hmm. and, and, and the minutes and the like, is that at some point, probably end of this year, beginning of next year, they're going to say, well, from now on, we're going to not replace all of the maturing securities. We may replace half of them, for example, whatever they decide. And that just means that without actually selling anything right. or taking any active uh, decision, the balance sheet will very gradually, over a number of years, you know, just begin to shrink back down towards something uh, more sustainable. There's a, there's, and folks, within the Cursed Act, the photos are absolutely extraordinary, and particularly the family photos uh, of uh, the Bernankes of Europe and particularly of Lithuania. There's a wonderful, lonely photo of you taking lunch with Tim Geithner, where I'm sure you had lots to talk about uh, at the time. Uh, maybe you didn't even eat, you just talked to each other about uh, what you're going to do with the ugly media. Within that was the glide path from 2007 to when the balance sheet was done. Do you have a date where you would think we would get the balance sheet to normalcy? Is it two years out, five years out? Is it 20 years yeah, out? Well, the Fed has released a lot of simulations or yes. you know, projections of what they think it will do. And, of course, it depends where they decide to end up. Um, mm -hmm. I think the, the best guess is something like four or five years after they begin the process okay. of unwinding to, to get back to some kind of sustainable level. Um, and so, again, I, I think that it's, it's not going to be uh, a huge problem. Um, and one reason, though, they waited until this point to begin the process is if it does end up tightening conditions a little bit, raises interest rates a little bit, then they have raised the short-term rate, the federal funds rate, enough away from zero. Right. So if necessary, they can, okay. can wait or even, if necessary, cut a little bit to offset whatever effect the balance sheet's having. In terms of policy wants and everybody worried about the Fed and what Chair Yellen's going to say and all that, this is the most important item of this entire conversation. You, in your Princeton commencement speech, you talked about a parent who bought a Cadillac every year, the tuition cost so much, and then you drive it off a cliff. That guy was Carl Riccadonna. He's with us in Bloomberg Economics. He's aerospace out of Princeton. And his father, every year, drove a Cadillac off the cliff to pay for your... <laughs> To metaphorically. Pay, yeah, metaf well, maybe not metaphorically. <laughs> but Carl today said to me something very important. He said just what you alluded to. You need an interest rate buffer to make the balance sheet reduction work. Right. They work in tandem. What's your confidence that well-meaning people can link those two items together to make the balance sheet shrink and at the same time get the right buffer that you need. Well, they don't want to start the process of shrinking the balance sheet until the interest rate is far enough away from zero. They feel they have some confident space. They want to make sure the economy is moving along in a good way at that point. You know, if, if it's a very uncertain mm -hmm. period and things are slowing down, they might delay and be cautious. Um, but they're just going to have to monitor. I mean, there's really no, there's no magic crystal ball. You have to see what's happening in the economy, following the data, following the financial markets. And, you know, I, I think they'll, uh, they'll, they'll be able to do it unless there's some new problem from outside, some new shock yeah. of some kind. But I don't see any practical reasons why they can't uh, unwind the balance sheet in a relatively passive way. Within the dynamic of the balance sheet, and so much that you hear talk about the expansion of the balance sheet, is it about measuring it to economic growth, or do you measure it to price change? Do you measure it to wage growth? Are there, are there, is it a set? Is it a super yeah, so parameter? The, the thing the Fed looks at mostly is what is the outlook for the economy? What is the model and the, and the analysis mm -hmm. and the best guesses of the, of the economists say about where the economy is going? One input, input into that outlook is what's the state of financial conditions? Are financial conditions very tight with high interest rates and low equity prices, or are they loose that are supportive of growth? Um, so they'll be looking at the outlook of the economy, 
trying to assess how the balance sheet wind, off, wind down is affecting those financial conditions, and based on that, they'll make those judgments. Um, I, just because of time here, and, and, and we could go on for hours. I could go on for hours. You probably don't want to. <laughs> Let's talk about it's not in your book. It's in the moment. It's in the zeitgeist of the world at this time. It's in the French elections. It's in the special election in the United Kingdom. And it's here as well, and that is trade. Douglas Irwin was with us of Dartmouth. His wonderful Against the Tide from years ago. Paul Krugman's essay on Ricardo from 20-some years ago. If I state interview after interview, we have the risk of becoming a zero-sum America and hearkening in our rhetoric back to a mercantile state. Is that a legitimate risk to Ben Bernanke? I don't think it's very likely because the cost of doing it would be so overwhelming. You know, just just the idea of shutting down NAFTA, for example, that the the U.S. auto industry and the Mexican auto industry are so integrated that if you were to draw a, a barrier between those two parts of the industry, you would have not only it wouldn't be good for the U.S. auto industry, they would be shutting down assembly lines because they couldn't get the parts. So the world is very integrated now. So I, I just think that any attempt to really shut down trade would have such a bad effect almost immediately that, that people would back off from that. And I don't see that happening, frankly. I mean, you're seeing a lot of discussion. Rhetoric. You're seeing talk about rhetoric. You're seeing some, some actions taken, like the, like the lumber uh, mm. action you know, against Canada. And there's going to be a bunch of things like that. But I, I, I guess I just don't see it as a realistic threat that there's going to be a major shutdown. of global Have you trade. written at Brookings or have you responded to the Navarro-Ross thesis of trade and particularly trade with China? Well, it's not the case that uh, trade is a zero-sum game. I mean, that's certainly true. Everyone benefits, or at least every major economy that's involved in trade, is going to benefit the same way that you and I benefit from trading with our neighbors, you know, in, in, in a store or in, uh, in a factory. Um, but it's not to say that there aren't improvements that can be made in our relationships. I, you know, I think that... Uh, if you ever seen if you ever seen a trade agreement, they're incredibly complicated. They're, many of them are deal with the details of small differences right. across different products and the like. So I'm not denying there couldn't be ways that you could improve our trade relationships. Right. But, but broadly speaking, I mean, I think that we are we, the United States, are irretrievably and irreversibly integrated into the global economy. Right. There's really no way we would want to undo that. We can we can try to. Uh, uh, improve the relationship. We can try to do better for people who are displaced or disrupted by trade, but we certainly don't want to end uh, our, our, global, uh, our global role. If you're just joining us on Bloomberg Television, Bloomberg Radio Worldwide, Ben Bernanke in conversation in support of the courage to act with a new afterword, a memoir of crisis and its aftermath. I can't say enough about the velocity of the book uh, in getting through uh, a most difficult eight, nine, and ten uh, years. In Abel Bernanke, my son used Abel Bernanke. I hope you enjoyed the royalty check. I don't know what it cost me. It was like, cat, it was like $200 or something or 250 or something for Abel Bernanke. Bernanke. Are the dollar dynamics in Abel Bernanke true today? Is President Trump ignorant of what dollar dynamics could be, given some of what we hear in rhetoric? Well, there is a bit of contradiction in different parts of the program that in that the, uh, some of the fiscal uh, plans, so the infrastructure tax cuts, that part of it, if it does in fact come about, is going to raise interest rates and cause the dollar to strengthen. Strong dollar... Uh, has a lot of effects on the economy. One of the effects it has is it's mm. probably going to make it more difficult to, say, bring back manufacturing jobs because manufacturing in the U.S. will be less competitive globally. So there's different parts of the, of the program which are not entirely consistent. The dollar is one of the reasons that uh, 
you know, that, that the fiscal part could actually be inconsistent with the trade part. Within this, and, and just one more question here, and I want to get to the broader American uh, picture, is a phrase, expect the unexpected. What is the unexpected we could see within international economics using currency as a litmus paper? Is it, do, you, do you think about renminbi? Is it about dollar dynamics? Is it something to do with euro politics right now and the experiment of the euro? What's the part of currency dynamics that could be the unexpected in the coming years? Well, uh, there was a lot of relief, you know, that uh, at least in financial circles that Mr. Macron won, you know, won the, along with Le Pen, won the first round of the mm -hmm. French election because of the concerns that Le Pen would push to take France out of the euro. Um, it does look to me like, at least for the immediate future, the euro is going to remain stable. If there was a country, like particularly one as big as France, mm -hmm. that tried to leave the eurozone, it would be very disruptive and would have major implications not just for the euro as a currency, but for right. for a wide range of assets. So there are some the political risks that come, you know, from Europe. There, the similarly risks uh, in 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 Asia. I remember the devaluation uh, in August 2015 by the Chinese which had such disruptive effects on the global financial markets because people didn't mm -hmm. understand you know, what it was about, what was the reason for it. And, and they have since then been much clearer about their strategy, which right. has been very helpful. And I'm honored to ask you this question, uh, and this goes back to your Tokyo 2005 speech, which I consider your most important uh, academic effort. Your courage to act to tell Japan how to reflate. Is Abinomics Ben Bernanke's speech of 2005? Well, actually, I'm going to be at the Bank of Japan later this month, and I'm going to try to update some of that. Uh, I think they've, they've made a lot of progress. I think that economics and particularly the very aggressive policies mm -hmm. of the Bank of Japan have moved them in, in the right direction. But it, quite honestly, it's been harder than I right. anticipated in 2000, um, and I need to think hard about you know, what more they could do if they need to do something. In your book, there is a one single picture which speaks to transparency. It is the first picture in your book, A Courage to Act. It's you on a street corner in Dillon, South Carolina with Scott Pelley of CBS. Was that your decision to do that? Was that your screaming call, we have to be more transparent? I'm going on 60 minutes. In, in, in general, yes. But you mentioned at the beginning of the hour, you talked about Michelle Smith, my communications right. director. She fought you the whole way? The Fed. No, no, no. She thought it was a good idea. I mean, traditionally, the Fed has been very, very removed from sort of mm -hmm. Main Street. I mean, this is just this is just the culture, and you know, very focused more on financial markets, on economists, right. you know, and and on some limited part of the of the media. But it was clear that in the middle of a crisis, as we were having, that it was important for the Fed to get out and explain mm -hmm. what we were seeing, what we were doing, why we were doing it. And and this 60 Minutes uh, program with Scott Pelley, where we went back to my hometown of Dillon, we sort of showed my background, tried to humanize me a little but also just try to give me a do. chance, yeah, difficult, I know, but try to give me a chance to explain to ordinary people what the Fed is. I mean, most people don't have that good a sense of what the Fed is and what it does, and it seemed that that was a time when it was really important to get out there. If I look at Dillon, South Carolina, I believe up on the northern border of South yeah. Carolina, it was railroads. I, I looked the other day, there's Dillon Yarn, which has gone through all the textile mm -hmm. turmoil in that. I want you to speak to Mr. Trump's America that has been, to use the phrase, financially repressed. Low interest rates, low nominal rates, low real rates. They can't save. There's been 
12 and 15 years of median income stagnation here. What can the elites do in Washington, in the sanctuary cities? What can they do to assist those people who've been crushed? All right, so this is a big, big issue for the United States. People are, uh, the American dream is about upward mobility. It's about the idea that if you are, even if you are of very modest origins, that if you work hard and you get some education and, and you, you know, continue to, to improve yourself, that you'll, you'll, you'll make your way up the ladder. And that upward mobility is much reduced to, compared to what it was uh, a few decades ago. And it needs to be a major, it needs to be a major um, mm-hmm. priority for, for policymakers in general and for Americans. Uh, it's not an easy problem. It's been many years in the making. There are many things you need to do, ranging from um, you know, uh, pre-K interventions through wor- uh, programs for working class kids, through apprenticeships, through better access to college, to um, uh, more infrastructure, to create more productivity, to improve technology. There's all these things you need to make the economy stronger, but with more focus on the question of who's it for. You know, we, we can't just have look at the overall numbers, the overall GDP numbers. You have to think about is everyone got a chance right. to, to make their way up the ladder? And if not, then the economy's not really serving. Are we living, were you a Fed chairman for a gilded age? I mean, you were in crisis. We know that from a courage to act. Or sh- I should say this. Is Chair Yellen a chairman for a gilded age? Is it a plutocracy? Uh, I think that's, that's a little strong. But it is certainly true that uh, the share of growth, the share of GDP gains going to the upper fraction of the, mm-hmm. of the income distribution is, is very high. And what it refl- as you mentioned, it reflects the fact that the, the median wage uh, has not risen very much over the past few decades, or the debates about the exact measurement. But what I, what I think is, is important is, is not just the fact that there's a range of outcomes, but the fact that you start off at, at a lower part of the distribution, mm-hmm. then the odds are today that you're going to stay there. You're not going to be able to make your way up the ladder. Mm-hmm. So I think people are okay with a certain amount of difference, a certain amount of inequality, as long as they feel that it's fair and that everybody has a chance. And I think to an increasing extent, people don't think there's a fair, a fair game. And that, that is really important to address. What can the monetary elites, and I don't mean just the Fed, and I don't want you to talk about this Fed day, but the ECB, the Bank of England, the leaders of our financial system, what can they do then to jumpstart that sense of fair? Well, I think what the, what the Fed has, has done, other central banks, you know, the, the, let's look back. I mean, the, the, the Fed's policies were very criticized. They were arguably going to, people were saying, oh, they're going to create hyperinflation. They're not going to have any benefits. Now, we look at an economy that in many ways is much better off now than it was a few years ago. We have not had hyperinflation. We've had low and stable inflation, and we've had a lot of job creation. And I think that helping the economy meet its potential and provide jobs, that's the best thing that central bank can do. And that's the fact the Fed has done that. The Fed, however, does not have the ability to create you know, uh, better educational opportunities. It can't make factories more productive. Um, those are things that, that the private sector and other policymakers have to be addressing. The mm. Fed has a certain number of things it can do, and it's really not fair to ask it to go beyond the tools that it actually has. When you write volume two, Alan Meltzer would tell you you must write a volume two. He was good <laughs> at that, as were many others. When you write a volume two of Courage to Act, there's a single sentence in your book, and it is President Obama. You people are shell-shocked. And he simply goes, how did we get to this point? He just quietly says that. 
How did you respond and how would you respond today to Americans saying, how did we get to this point? Well, the crisis itself was a complicated phenomenon and it was essentially a, a big panic in the financial system. It was built up over a number of years, uh, excessive risk taking, excessive reliance on short term funding. And, and frankly, you know, the, the regulators and the policymakers didn't see it coming, or at least not enough. I mean, we addressed mm -hmm. some parts of it. So that, that was a failing, and certainly is one of the reasons why people are still angry today, because even though we've recovered from it, the still there. they went through a lot. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, I, again, I think it's important to distinguish that, as important as it was, from these longer-term issues, which go back to at least to the 70s, of slower productivity growth, greater inequality, and low, lower social mobility, which the crisis didn't help any of that, but it wasn't mm -hmm. the cause of it. This is something that's been going on mm -hmm. now for probably mm -hmm. at least 40 years, and, and it's not something that's going to turn around in a few weeks. It takes, it's going to take a lot of concerted effort attention to get us back on the right, on the right track. Ben Bernanke, thank you so much. Our courage to act, and I did not ask him how many rate increases we would see uh, this year. <laughs>